This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. My guest today on Front Row Rugby is former Springbok coach Ian McIntosh. Ian, thank you for being available and welcome to Front Row Rugby. It's an absolute pleasure. These days it's great to be available anywhere. <laughs> well, you're very welcome here, I can tell you that. Let's take a look at this week's trivia question. Who did the Springboks face in the quarterfinals of the 2007 Rugby World Cup? If you know the answer to that, you can put it in the comment section down below. We'll also find out if Ian knows the answer, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Ian, I'd like to begin with your journey from Zimbabwe to South Africa. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, it's actually, I like to use the word Rhodesia. <laughs> because, but I, I did leave when it was Zimbabwe. It was three years after independence. And, um, you know, basically it coached Rhodesia for six years in the Curry Cup and the Coach Club. And my life was coaching, and, but I was working for uh, Rhodesian breweries uh, and, uh, and um, had good promotion. And suddenly I got a call from Natal to say what I'd like to be the coaching organizer. And uh, at that time, things were difficult in Zimbabwe to get bucks out. I had three boys I knew were going to go to university. And for the first time, it was Rona, my wife, and I were never going to leave. And for the first time, we realized it would be practical to actually leave and come here. And we did. And uh, it's been great. The Natal years were very successful for you. Did you think in 1992 that you were in with a shout for the Springbok job? I never, ever dreamed to be the Springbok coach. And, um, and I'm afraid, I've got to say this, I think too many coaches today are too ambitious. It's just getting on, you know, sometimes in, in any job you do, all you want to do is promotion, but you, you take care that you're doing the job you're doing. And um, I've got no time for coaches who are personal and just ambitious to coach our coach the books. So I had no dreams of doing it, obviously. And, um, and then suddenly, um, John Williams, who I think was treated unfairly, his first year back into international rugby, didn't go too well for him. And I think they should have given him a little bit more time. He was a good coach. He had very good results with uh, Northern Transvaal in those days. And then suddenly my name appeared in the hat. But I still didn't get the job because Gheri Sarkis got the job because he, you know, he didn't get that job without being an ex-spring, but also speaking Afrikaans. So I was way out of the list. Um, and then they gave him the job. And then they did the worst possible thing they could have done. They gave me the A team to coach. So in other words, it was like almost piecemeal. Um, it was all that they tell me to get stitched. But uh, I was advised that Sonicus had some financial issue and he had to step, he was going to step down. And all of a sudden they offered me the job. Now here's the ironical thing. When I got offered the job in those days, you could not coach or play for a side and earn money. It was still strictly amateur. It was actually in the law book. No official could get paid. So when I was at Natal, they used to pay my salary to King Sports. And King Sports used to pay me. And so when they offered me that job, I said, yes, I'd love to do that. But um, how much? They said, what? How much? No coach. John Williams, Cecil Moss. Nearly Smith, none of them got paid. You had another job in those days and then you coach. So they came back and said, right, we'll pay you the same that you get in at Mattel. So for all my troubles and woes of what I went through, 
I've got the same salary as coaching at Dell, not as millions they get today. But yes, and then it was, I've got to be honest and say I never enjoyed really one minute of coaching. Uh, the first year maybe was good, but the second year things weren't right. I never had the selections right. I knew that they wanted me out anyway. Oh yeah, the point I made at when Sonic stood down, then they had to give me the job because I'd, they'd already pointed me as the eighteen. I don't think they were too happy from day one about that. <laughs> but anyway, I we had a way of playing in a towel, which I don't know if you read or know. It's called direct rugby, which brought us all the success with Natal. And I truly believe that we implemented that into the South African team. No one would beat us. But unfortunately, especially the second year, it went well the first year. In our first test against Australia, we were champions. We beat them in Australia. But then we lost the series. We scored seven tries to their four, but we lost the series. But anyway, I had certain players in the team the next year who didn't want to play that way. And that was, and once you lose your changing room, which are your players, you, then you're finished. And then, of course, kids Christie had had success in winning the Curry Cup the year I was away from here. And um, from then on, they all became Kitch's men. So, as much as it hurt me, and it was embarrassing, Kitch was the right guy because he had all those players and they played his way. Um, and you've got to have that. But my sad part is that I only had one year in the seat. It's, it sounded like two, two years, but I went in in the May and was fired in the July. So in that period, we played France. My first test, France, 300 tests in the test caps, and we had 17. I'm not making excuses at all, but we played France. We played England. We played um, Australia. We went to Argentina, uh, and then we played New Zealand. Now, no coaches succeeded in New Zealand over a series, and very few in the world have. But anyway, if you cannot build a side in one season, and I, my saddest part about it all, I just wish I'd had another one or two seasons, because there would have been drastic changes in selection, and drastic changes in personnel. Because I don't believe in the year that I was involved that we had the right selection. And remember, I had five other selectors. And again, I'm not using that as an excuse, but I never felt the selections were right. So it wasn't, wasn't a very happy tenure for me. And also knowing that the big wolf, Louis Late, was only looking at my shoulder the whole time. But it's history now. I came back and we had some, some very good years back in the town. Talk to me about the philosophy of direct rugby. All right, it's very simple. Do you hear all the commentators today and scribes talking, you've got to get over the game line? Have you heard that? Yes, Common... yes. So I ask these guys, what does it mean to be over the game line? They cannot tell you because it's just become a fashionable word. And that is a form of direct rugby. What it means, if I start with eight scores, wherever I start, and I give it to my backs, if you don't get the ball over the gain line, you're not in front, I mean, your forwards, the ball's not in front of your forwards. So they are out of the game. 
they've got to come back. Now, the old way used to all just run the ball down the back line, but there's another line that is very pertinent to this gain line. The gain line is where you start. That's it, what they call it, bondism. But there's a tackle line behind that. In other words, where a tackle is going to meet your, your backs is behind that gain line. So if you're just running it willy-nilly, and this is what I found out the hard way, running it willy-nilly down the back line, you're going to get caught behind your fours all the time. And then your fours don't get... So their 15 are going to play your backs. And of course, you know, you've got no chance. So we started to reverse that by going in first, not backing it up like they do today. That's ridiculous. We had what we call starter moves from set pieces. We'd go in, we'd have, we'd have annual running scissors cut through to actually break through there. And once you, the ball had to come out and your forwards can run onto that ball again, you can play it to your backs, you can play it to your forwards, and then suddenly you've got 15 playing there seven. And that's when it happens. And if you look at the record, I think, of the Sharks, especially in 96, we broke every record, the most points, the most tries, all because playing 15 against 7, is, that's what's going to happen. So very few people understand it. They try to do it now, and to my opinion, and I say this respectfully, they bash it up. Once you've bashed it up, you've got a ground, nobody gets sucked in, they still span across the field. You've got to move it and sometimes have a mall and drive it through. But anyway, there's a lot more to it than that. But that's basically that you've got to have the ball in front. Then I did an exercise working out that you just fed the back line. You would have a chance of so maybe 20%, and that's high, of scoring. If you kicked it, you had a 10% chance that the ball would bounce for you. But if you went in all tries, there was 70% of, and I did this at World Cup stats for the for you, all tries from broken play, 70% of the tries. So in other words, go in first, make broken play, suck in the defense, then give your ball and you're running onto it. That's where you, and that's when I developed that in a rough form, but then we got it really tight in there. How did you come to select Francois Pinard as your first Springbok captain? That came because uh, Harry Fulhoun, who had come in 93, to come and work with me here. He wanted to see what we were doing on all this. And he had Francois the year before. And uh, he said to me, Matt, make Francois your captain. He's a good one. And he was, until he decided he wanted to play his way. And that was different. But I enjoyed working with him the first year. He was very innovative. He, he, he thinks ahead of the, ahead of him, things, and it was good. And we did quite well the first year, but then, you know, the, the horse come in when you're not getting the results. How nervous were you ahead of that first test against France in 1993? I'm always nervous, whether I do under 13 coaching or Swiss, whatever team, I'm a very, I guess, I get very worked up and I'm very nervous. So, yes, it was never. And I remember Kitsch Kiski, after I was fired, he came and had lunch with me and said, Matt, uh, did you get nervous? I said, shit, tell me about it. And he said, poor, I get so nervous. All coaches do. Some keep it within. They die young afterwards. Some let it out, like Heineken Meyer and us. We live a little longer. <laughs> and how disappointed were you not to get the victory? Yeah, you know, the, ironically, the first test here, 
we should have lost. Now, the week before that, I coached the A team in East London, and we beat that same French team, same French team, by 30 points. But when we played in Durban, certain people were not in my way. And that's when I should have made changes. And we drew. Then we went to Joburg and we lost. But we played much better and we should have won that game. So uh, ironically, we were lucky to get the draw and unlucky not to win in Joburg. Off to Australia and we beat the Wallabies in that first test match in Sydney. What was it like post-match? Oh, that was like and Everybody was so happy. You just worked beating the world champs, bang, bang, bang. Look all glory until the second test came. And then James Small got sent off, if you recall, in the second test. And that was ridiculous. All he said to the referee was, why don't you give him a try? And the referee him off. He didn't swear to him or anything. Yeah. So then we narrowly lost that one. And uh, we lost the last one. And then... The proverbial cut hit the fan. <laughs> <laughs> and what was Argentina like? Because a lot of the players that I've spoken to have told me how enjoyable the country was, but those midweek matches were really, really difficult because of the partisan crowds and the local referees. Well, against Buenos Aires, we had a referee. I think, I don't forget what the penalty counts is. All they do is they kick, take the into the corner, take the ball around a drive penalty, drive penalty. And we lost. And when the game was finished, Everybody came and hugged the referee. <laughs> that was bizarre. But uh, Derek Kevin, who I rate one of the best refs in those times, fortunately he left us in the test. And uh, we very nearly lost the first test again because certain players were not playing. And the second test, I dropped players. And if you recall, we won with a record score. Playing, we then brought Henry Honeyball in to fly off. It was my fly off here. And, I, and he couldn't go the next year to New Zealand, um, which was sad. So I, obviously, he would have been my fly off. And I couldn't get Joel in the team. He would have also been my fly off. So, um, yeah. But that was ended up in a very good, happy talk. Except the game against Tukuman. You must have heard about that. The big fight. That's incredible. Terrible scenes you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, I actually remember that Tukuman story. I didn't watch it on the TV. My parents wouldn't let me stay up. Uh, but I remember reading about it in the paper and then obviously seeing the highlights on the TV as well in the aftermath. So on to 1994. We're playing England in a two-match series. The first test in Pretoria. And we got hammered. What went wrong? Oh, that was embarrassing. You don't lose to the English loftus of all people with the avocados in. And when we came around the next year and we picked up, we I knew then there was problems because at the practice, you know, and that's another thing these coaches say, they haven't got enough time. In those days, when you played at home, you could only assemble on the Thursday before the test. We didn't have weeks of preparation like they do now. Anyway, when we got together on that first test, when we got back from the practice, I called Francois Pino and I said, Francois, we're in trouble. You know how many captains you had at practice today talking, we're going to do this? And, we did. and he said, don't worry, coach, don't worry, we've got it all sorted. Well, as you know, we got a blooming good hiding, and that is when the first time I laid down the law. And I said to them afterwards, I, don't, I, I know I'm going to get fired, you know that, 
But I'm telling you, I'm going to get fired playing my way, not the way you want to play. Now, this week, we're going out to practice, and we had to go back down to Cape Town. And anybody who thinks they don't want to play, I want to play, let me know now. I'll bring somebody else in. And also the week before that, the guys were moaning and complaining about monies. They didn't. And anyway, the next week, as you know, we went down. There wasn't a word said. We did what we had to do. And we had a record score against England in the second test in England. So, yeah. And by the way, a week later, we were going to, to New Zealand. I still didn't know if I was the coach of New Zealand or not. I heard that in the background, they were trying to get somebody else to go. As you say, we bounced back beautifully to win that second test in Cape Town. And then it was off to New Zealand. And just like a lot of the players told me how much they enjoyed Argentina, they similarly say that touring New Zealand was very, very tough. Very, very tough. Very, very tough. But I still believe if we played the direct stuff I wanted to play, we would have won that series. It was that close, you know, in the series. There were only three tries each. They didn't hammer us. I think in I think the first test we narrowly lost because our kicking was off. And then the second test, um, I think it was 49 or something. It was one. It was close. And in the last test, we scored two tries with their no, but they got six penalties, so it was 18 all. So, um, but prior to that last test, uh, we had to play Canterbury. Now, remember playing Wellington, which we won, to play Canterbury? They were all waiting for us, eh? and they had tough games. And I said, in the Canterbury game, to, uh, to the that if, work it out. if you don't play the way I want, I'm going to pull you off the field. In those days, you couldn't replace it. I said, play with 14 men, but we're going to play. And look what happened. We drilled Canterbury, and we went into the next test, and we scored two tries, we should have won it. And uh, I was then told, you know, I understand what you mean, but it was too late then. Yeah, I actually just had a look here at my notes. 13-9 was the final score in that second test in Wellington. Perhaps most notorious for the Johan LaRue incident where he bit Sean Fitzpatrick's ear. What happened there? What is sad is that he went and he bit him. Because what happened is you coach a guy like Johan Leroux and he's so attentive to where you want him to be. And he, they will break down the brick wall to be where you say they should be. And Fitzpatrick was holding him on the ground and he knew he had to get up and be at the next breakdown. So as I said to him, after, why don't you just bloody headbutt him or give him a club? We would have got a couple of weeks. But by going down to bite him, didn't look good. So it was sad. And uh, we, when we got back, Jan Engelbrecht, he said, we're not going to wait like most people in front cover it up. It's plain to see that it's not good. So we made the decision to send him home. And then we didn't get the backing from real light and everybody. Why we, and the players were all upset. But I can tell you what, if we didn't do that, there would have been more uh, things thrown on the team, thrown him. So it was, it was sad. And um, he's a very good person. But he had this habit of biting people. He had bitten us when we played Transvaal a few times. 
but we sorted them out. We've got a broken nose for that. <laughs> That's great. Ian, on a more serious note, you've mentioned a few times now the jeopardy that you felt you were under throughout your time as Springbok coach. After that tour to New Zealand, did you know that you were going to get sacked? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I got back from, from New Zealand, yeah, yeah. I knew before that that it was just when it was going to happen. That's all. Because things had turned on me. And I knew that Louis Late uh, wanted his boys and everything. And, um, yeah, it wasn't nice. It was very embarrassing. You know, when you get hung out to dry in, in the public, the national game, you're there coaching. <laughs> so it wasn't nice for me or my family. But fortunately, I got back into Natal on the saddle and we had three bloody good seasons here. So it was ended off on a good night. Sometimes in other sports, especially in football, you see it with Brazil and the Netherlands, where somebody might coach the national team, he gets sacked or he resigns, and then he comes back a few years later for a second stint, sometimes even a third stint. Did you think that you might get another crack at the Springbok job? What do you mean? No, that was never going to happen. Because I tell you what, a couple of years later, I bumped into Nelly Smith with one more curry cups and everything. And uh, we chatted about this. And Nelly Smith was also fired after New Zealand. All coaches were fired, including Dr. Craven himself, way back. But he said, and I said that, he said, don't worry, they'll never come back to you. And that's the story. But what happened when I got back from Wales, because I coached up at Deadwood, I got back and I was on the technical committee. Then I coached the Springbok Sevens, and I was a selector for 13 years after that. I was selected with Jake White, went to the World Cup with Peter de Villiers and Heineken Meyer. And then after that, they said bye-bye. Simple as that. Okay, Ian, I ask all of the players who come on the show to share a funny or a memorable moment with me from their time with the Springboks. From a coaching point of view, is there anything funny or memorable that you can share with us? I didn't say <laughs> there a lot. Especially if you coach Natal with Dick Muir in the side. There's a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, I just, I think, I think probably one of the funniest things, there's many, but we were, I'm a stickler for time and practice. When that practice starts, if the player's not there, I send him home or chase him away and I'll call him backwards. So you've got to have to start with that discipline. So we were in Queenstown in New Zealand with the Sharks. And we had a practice at the local ground at 2 o'clock. But when I got there, my instinct just told me somebody's missing. And I was looking around and I said, right. And I knew it was. I said, where's John Allen? He's late. And as I said there, there was a thump behind me. And what he had done, he was at that field in Queenstown, there are a lot of mountains. And you have this paragliding, but he had this tandem parachuting. And he'd gone and jumped with a, another parachuter of the thing. And he came and he landed with this parachuter right behind me. And as I said, where's John Allen? He said, here I am. <laughs> he'd come down from the mountain. So that was a big laugh. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at that trivia question again. Who did the Springboks face in the quarterfinals of the 2007 Rugby World Cup? Do you know the answer, Ian? I think it was... I think it was Samoa, wasn't it? No, nah, it wasn't actually Samoa. The correct answer is Fiji. 
Ian, thank you so very much for being a guest here on Front Row Rugby today. It really was lovely having you on, and I hope that we can have you on again in the future. It was absolutely pleasure, Master, and uh, any time when you need me, I'm available. Last time on Front Row Rugby, I had former Springbok prop Heinrich Rogers with me. You can go and have a look at that video. It's appearing on the screen right now. Next time, we'll have another former Springbok prop, the 1998 Tri-Nations winner, Adrian Garvey. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.